You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Well, it's always a privilege to get to be able to preach to you today and uh, on any occasion, and uh, a special privilege to be able to preach today to you. Let's pause and pray before we open God's Word. Father, thank you for this day that you have made. Uh, we're reminded of the um, singular significance of the Scripture that we hold in our hand that we have in our hearts, that we live out each day and evaluate all the things that come our way by. Lord, help us to treat it with the significance that it deserves. Your words on paper to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in the book of Romans this morning, and <clears throat> I'd like you to go there because it just kind of speaks to the, the times in which we live. In fact, when I began to ponder this text, <clears throat> I thought to myself, it's almost like reading, it's almost like reading today's newspaper or watching a newscast of some events or some, some things that are happening. And, um, and to, the, to the one who kind of looks at today's news and thinks it's never been this bad before, you haven't read history. Um, it has been bad. And it has been bad since the first murder of the first sons of Adam and Eve. And the sin that came into the world. And so uh, there's nothing new, as it were, under the sun when it comes to the things that we're experiencing. And I know that there are some things that seem novel to us. Some that grew up in what we termed as the good old days, which if you kind of replayed it, probably wasn't as good as you think it, they were. You just kind of have selective memory. <clears throat> By the way, that's true of you who had outhouses, <laughs> you know. Uh, and if you grew up in Amish area, that, that was common. So, um, Paul begins this letter in verse 1 and 2 by saying, uh, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to, be an out, uh, uh, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. The gospel of God, which... He had promised, listen to the phrasing there, the gospel which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scripture. Think of what he's saying here. The book of John, the book of Matthew, the book of Mark or Luke had not been written. In fact, only two or three books of the Bible had been written prior to him saying the gospel. He's referring to the gospel that had been declared 
throughout all of the centuries from the beginning of time when Genesis 3 declared the first hint of the gospel that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. The gospel permeated throughout the Old Testament and preached by the prophets gave, gave hope to all of those who came after. I submit to you that those in the Old Testament had just as much light about the gospel as we have today. It's on a, in a different, from a different angle. It's the gospel that afore had been declared by the prophets. Uh, and by the way, if you're as we look at this text and its dark side, and I, uh, for lack of better uh, phrasing, I uh, declared it the great gospel painted on a dark canvas. It's almost as though God, uh, like God did in Genesis, where he said in Genesis 1 and 2, when he had created these uh, wonderful things, he said, and it was good, and it was good. And then man sinned, and all that which was bad came and invaded the world. So it is here in the book of Romans. It's as though uh, Paul took a page from God himself, and he declares good things. And then those good things are painted on the canvas of some dark things. But it ends with that which is good. Lest you think that the gospel is the is New Testament only. It's throughout all the Old Testament. The gospel is that in verse 9. You see, the, uh, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. That's the good news. It's of his son. Backing up to verse uh, 3 and 4. It's the clarification what that means. Concerning his son, uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. He came into the world, took on a human body, just like ours, tempted in all points, like as we, and yet without sin. Verse 4, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. No one else has ever been buried and rose from the dead as he was, Amen. never to die again. Even Lazarus, who had uh, rose from the dead at the, at the beckoning of Jesus, died again, waiting for that resurrection. But not the Lord Jesus. What a declaration of the power of the Son of God that he was raised from the dead. That's the gospel, that he died, and that he was buried, and that he rose again, and he lives forever. Long before the New Testament was ever penned, Job said in chapter 19, he said, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Long before uh, the New Testament was ever penned, the gospel was already in existence. Notice, if you will, uh, on down in verse 7 in this letter, powerful letter, uh, I think if you can get in your head to whom he's writing the letter in the city of Rome, it would be the equivalent of Washington, D.C. All the, all the terrible things on the news that you, you see about big city life, 
would be equivalent to what you would know about the Roman life. It was the center of commerce. It was the center of uh, government. It was the center of the world, as it were. And all the, uh, uh, all the vices centralized in that spot, like it does in Washington, D.C. So to those in, the, in that city of Rome, he writes, Beloved of God, called to be saints, here it is, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever considered this, that nobody ever knows real peace until, first of all, they know the grace of God? You've got, to know, uh, you've got to know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. You've got to know that before you'll ever know the peace of God in Romans chapter 5, peace between you and God. Somebody may say to themselves, well, I've made my peace. That's not the peace of God. Somebody said, somebody uh, may say, uh, uh, I'm at peace. That's not the peace of God. The reality is there's only one way to have the peace of God, and that is to be the recipient of the gift of God. Again, declared in Romans chapter 5, that is free, free to those who will repent and put their faith in Christ. Now we get to the body of the letter. Uh, in fact, do me a favor before we do that. Look in verse 8 in this introductory part. Uh, even though all of those verses 1 through 7 are kind of the greeting aspect, in the beginning of this body of this letter, he begins it by saying, uh, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Uh, have you ever considered the fact that one of the distinguishing marks of the Bible believer is that he really knows how to be grateful? Who do you know in this culture of ours that... that um, seems to live a life of gratitude any more than the, than the godly man or woman who's right with God. He understands that there's, there's so much to be thankful for. Gratitude is a badge that's worn by the believer in a unique way that no unbeliever can ever know. Thankful, he said. Thank God for you. You think of the people in this building and how... Uh, how, um, how this audience would be diminished if you weren't here. We're thankful for each other because we encourage each other, we help each other, and so it was with him. I'm thankful for you all. Then he continues his message to these Roman Christians by saying, not only am I thankful for you, I feel responsible to you. In fact, look in verse 13. I'm responsible because I would not have you ignorant brethren. Do you know somebody said this, that the most populated church in, in America is the church of the ignorant brethren? Uh, he's not saying it in that way. You know, he's not trying to be um, uh, condescending. He's not... Uh, he's not saying this, and uh, you're not you're not smart. Uh, he's not saying uh, you're uh, stupid, but he's saying in regard. In fact, he uses that same terminology in multiple books and he, in multiple letters that he wrote, and he uses the word ignorant in the sense of I don't want you to be uninformed. 
you got to know. You, you can't, listen, you can't live like the ostrich with his, with his head in the sand. you got to see what's going on in the world around you. That's the world we live in. You can wish for a different day, but it's not reality. you got to, and he's not being, um, he's not being pessimistic. He's not being negative when he gives the information that he's about to give to us. It's informative. Uh, you see, the idea that somehow if you tell the truth, if you tell the truth that somehow um, maybe that makes you just kind of a, a sad sack and a you know gloom and doom kind of a fellow. That's not the objective here. When we get into the heart of the message in the uh, verse 17 and following, you'll see that he's not trying to uh, rain on your parade. Um, but he's trying to inform you. Uh, don't be like that dear little lady that just she just saw good in everything. And, and somebody said, well, what about the devil? And she said, well, at least he's persistent. <laughs> don't do that. Be realistic. You see that in verse 13? I would not have you to be ignorant. No, no godly believer uh, is, is benefited by burying his head in the sand and not knowing what's around him. He needs or she needs to be informed, not ignorant. So the stage is set in verse 17 for therein is righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Now, how are we going to overcome this ignorance? Well, it's going to be the first step of faith. Uh, we talked about that a few weeks ago on an evening service. Peter said we need to add to our faith virtue. And the, the very first step in, in not being ignorant anymore is you got to take that step of faith. And for some of us, it was at an old altar where we, uh, where we uh, bore our heart to God and repented of our sin and trusted the Lord. For some was a, a steering wheel where we called out the Lord in an automobile or at a kitchen sink where we called out to the Lord and trusted Him as our Savior. We'd had no clue what that all meant, but He took us into His family. We didn't accept Him. He accepted us. It's not like we... Uh, we, he was in the line of options, and we came along and said, no, I'm not going to accept that. No, I'm not going to accept that. Oh, I'll accept that. He said, you're not acceptable. You need to repent and put your faith in, him, uh, in me, and when you do, I'll accept you. Out of the billions that ever lived, I'll accept you. With all of your sins, with all your failures and foibles, I'll take you into my family. And he did. By faith, that happened, but that wasn't the last step. Look on in verse 17. The just shall live by faith. Peter said, add to your faith. Um, if all the faith that you have is the faith that you had that moment years ago or months ago or decades ago when you trusted him as your Savior, if that's all the faith you have, you don't have the faith that he wants you to have. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But you know, who knows? You're going to have to live by faith. I don't know when the phone rings, what's going to be on the other side of that phone line, but I know who does. Why do I have to live by faith? 
If I don't live by faith, I'm going to be blown out of the water, disillusioned, discouraged. When I read this next section here, this is why. Because, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Listen, you understand something. This bleak picture that's been painted on this dark canvas is not a pretty picture. I don't, I don't like to think of God in terms of his wrath, but it's real. We can't diminish the fact. It says the, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's going to be manifest against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The bleak picture goes on to talk about the unrighteousness of man exposed. Look at it in verse 21 and 22. Here it is exposed because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Number one, it's, it's exposed in the fact that they glorified not God as God. I was reading an article about uh, Karl Marx, lived between 1818 and 1883. And it's supposed that all the tyrants and the murderers from Hitler to Mao Zedong to Pol Pot, to name whatever you want to name, if you add them all up, their responsibility for the millions that they each killed, you could add them all up and put them under the umbrella of Karl Marx. He really was the, the author of the mentality of the modern dictator. Here's what it is said about him. He was raised as a Lutheran boy, and at age 17 he wrote this. In, a, in something that he had written called the union of the faithful with Christ. This is what he said. This is Marx's quote at 17 years old. Through love of Christ, we turn our hearts at the same time toward our brethren who are inwardly bound to us and for whom he gave himself in sacrifice. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Not many years later, we find him now writing this. I wish to avenge myself against the one who rules above. Then I will walk triumphantly like a god through the ruins of their kingdom. My breast is equal to that of the creator. I am great like God. What changed him? Somewhere along the line, something transformed that man. And his change then transformed others in the future. You see, in verse number 21, it says, number one, they glorified him not as God. Somewhere when we no longer esteem God to be God, he's no longer high and holy, we drag him from the throne down to our little pedestal and make him like we are. We've begun the downward spiral found here in Romans 1. Number two, not only had they not glorified him as God, but neither were thankful. Now, you, you remember in contrast back in verse 8, he said, I thank my God. Uh, the, the distinguishing mark of the believer is gratitude. Uh, the distinguishing mark of the unbeliever is ingratitude. I mean, there's, it's never enough. And, uh, in, 
the, there's a word found in verse 31 that's a descriptive word. We don't use it very much, but it's called implacable. You see it in verse 31? Implacable. It means unable to placate, relentless. It sounds just like the evening news. You could never give them enough stuff to make them happy. That's the idea of the the one who rejects the God of heaven. Implacable, uh, unthankful. That's the first two components of man being exposed. What did it produce? Look on in verse 21. Became vain in their imaginations. Who are they most concerned about? Themselves. Uh, We've invented the selfies. You know? People literally take selfies on the edges of of canyons and plunge to their death. Crazy. It's all about me. Vain in their imagination. And and the imagination part throughout Scripture, I I know that there's maybe some artistic person in here who might think, uh, I'm just going to use my imagination to create some piece of art. Listen, don't get caught too much up in your imagination. The Bible never uses that word in a positive light. Creativity, but imagination. This imagination of going beyond the boundaries is not a positive thing. It was was at the heart of the flood in Genesis chapter 6. Imagination affects the mind. In fact, back in verse 28, if you will, go back there a moment. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. What happens when imagination just keeps amplifying and accelerating and snowballing and getting bigger and bigger pretty soon? They can't even think straight. Uh, You don't have to, again, watch much news to think. People aren't thinking straight, man. They're just, common sense is not common anymore. It's just, it's pretty rare. The mind is affected. Look at the second part that is affected by this uh, decision not to glorify God, not to be thankful. Became vain in their imagination. Verse 21, the second part is became foolish in their hearts. You see, once I start thinking wrong, it's not very long, I'm going to start feeling wrong. My heart begins to uh, uh, produce emotions that are not healthy. For me or for those around me. That's the downward spiral of the unrighteous man who's exposed, who's glorified not God, nor thankful. He becomes vain in his imagination. He becomes dark, darkened in his heart. How does this all transpire? Well, there's three things. You see them down in verse 23, 25, and 26. Three changes. We sang a moment ago the wonderful song based on Lamentations 3, Thou changest not. Great is thy faithfulness. Thou changest not. Uh, Jeremiah, the wonderful writer of Lamentations, wrote it at the uh, most, uh, most difficult time in the kingdom of Israel or Judah as he watched his family members and friends and those that he loved being taken away to Babylon. He Uh, He penned those words, great is thy faithfulness, thou changest not. 
But notice how the ungodly look at change. First of all, verse 23. They change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image. Uh, A little bit of reading in Greek mythology sees how radically the Greeks viewed uh, the gods petty and uh, petulant, um, arbitrary in their decisions, and uh, just uh, just terrible in all their uh, conduct. They made the gods to reflect them. Look at that again in verse 23. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into this image uh, 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 like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and to creeping. Isn't that an odd thing? You mean you're going to take this little bird or this little animal or you're going to make a little shape of a snake or whatever it may be and you're going to bow down and talk to that and you may not even do it in a physical way but in a mental way, some kind of amulet or some kind of um, uh, lucky charm uh, and reducing God to something that he's not. He's not corruptible. He's incorruptible. But when culture and mankind reveals its true colors, it reduces, it changes God. Number two, look in verse 25. Not only did they change God, into what's corruptible, they change the truth of God into a lie. You don't have to read very long and far throughout the Bible, and there have been those who've changed God's word to fit their own selves. As we read some of the things that are coming up in just a moment, uh, you don't have to uh, you don't have to read very far or find a version that'll uh, corroborate or a commentary that'll cor- corroborate some something that is ad, uh, adverse to God's word. You see, because the natural tendency of man is to change the truth into a lie because it fits us. We want to change God to fit us. We want to change his truth to fit us. And then finally, look at verse 26 and 27. And we'll not look at the entire list, but this is at least... A start of it, it's not meaning that this is any worse than any of the others because it's all, it's a bad, it's a bleak picture. But look in verse 26, they changed the design of God. Not only did they change the glory of God and the truth of God, look at the design of God. And, and, and please understand something here. We could make all kinds of humorous jokes and in time past preachers have and teachers had and, and I'm not faulting them for but this is not a joking matter in verse 26 and 27. It's such a serious matter. In fact, we're so infected by it, the, 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 the pressure on our teenagers and the pressure of uh, grandmas and grandpas who don't want to uh, alienate uh, people in their family who have engaged in this behavior. The pressure is so large in our culture that it's not a joking matter anymore. We can't make those kinds of um, frivolous or levity uh, over these things. Listen carefully. Change the truth of God into a lie. And worship and serve the creature more than the creator. Verse uh, 26. Uh, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. 
you, you do understand this. What defines who I am is not my impulses and propensities. All of us have propensities and, and, and uh, all of us have impulses, but that's not who I am. Listen to the rest of this. Gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their heir which was meat. Meat in the sense of not meat and greet, but meat in the sense of suitable. It was proportionate, commensurate with their behavior choice. You see, we can't change the glory of God and not experience the consequences. We can't change the truth of God and not experience the consequences. But we can't change the design of God and expect no consequences. Uh, God's designed this whole thing. It's not up to us. This chapter and the next few chapters, chapter 2 and 3 and 4, seem to paint a dark picture. But who would take the prescription if the doctor didn't paint the dark? If the doctor didn't call you into the office and say, man, you're sick. I'll tell you, you're really sick. In fact, you're so sick, I'm going to tell you how bad it is. And he enumerates, this is what's wrong with you, and that's what's wrong with you. And you say, doctor, man, give me anything. I want to get well. Ah, there comes the light on the canvas. The dark canvas with the great gospel. Look in chapter 5 of Romans. Here it is. All of those things are true about cultures and about individuals and about times all of those things are true, but look what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, all of those difficult things, all the things the doctors told me to make, convince me how sick I am, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. I'm not at war with God anymore. He's not my enemy anymore. Not because I made peace with him, because he made peace with me. He extended the olive branch and I said, yes, I'm willing to put up the white flag and surrender. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The glory of God that once was, was changed in our life to fit our liking. Now, we relinquish that and we come into his glory. Verse 3, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations. Now we don't look at those things that go wrong in our life and get mad at God. Say, why are you doing this? You know, like a Karl Marx or a, um, a Charles Darwin or whoever it is that comes along and says, God, you're not fair. It's not right. We don't look at it like that. Why? Because in tribulation... We recognize that tribulation worketh patience. Now, everybody has tribulation. It just, it just um, do you allow it to accomplish patience in you? That's the issue. 
and patience, experience, and experience hope. Here it is. And hope maketh not ashamed. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. Now I recognize that that which I had imbibed in was not excusable. But Christ died. He rose from the dead. He, he paid a price and he offered himself as much to the Roman soldiers when he said, and the Pharisees, he said, Father, forgive them for, for they know not what they did. As much to them he offered to me. Father, forgive that boy. He didn't know what he did. He stole it. He lied about it. He did it. And he's ignorant. But now we have no excuse. Our ignorance is gone. So he offered us his forgiveness. And when I responded to it, I found out that he took all the shame away because he put it under the blood. Not because it wasn't worthy of shame. Don't misunderstand. My sin was worthy of shame and I'm ashamed of it. But he took the shame away when he put it under the blood because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given us. When I think of the beginning of Romans chapter 1 and all of his gratitude and grace and peace and the gospel and the beauty of the gospel, and I, I, I bring it here to chapter 5, I think of all that's in between. It's not a very pretty picture, but I'm glad for that which comes before and that which comes after. Can we end in just this one last spot? Romans chapter 8. I think it's so, and perhaps the preachers in this room might disagree, but I think it's so, that Romans chapter 8 is the pinnacle of this entire letter. If there's a crescendo in this piece of music, it reaches to the maximum height when it comes to Romans chapter 8, and not that it diminishes, but that that crescendo begins to die as it goes to chapter 16 and the, and the letter comes to an end. Here's the crescendo. See it in verse eight, uh, verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Now, there is the, now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. I like that. I'm, gl I'm glad... Jesus isn't always pointing his bony finger at me and saying, you know what, buddy? You need to get it straight, you know? If I was deputy God, I'd do that, you know? If I knew what, if I knew what God knows about you, I'd, I, yeah, you know? No condemnation. You understand that, don't you? Isn't that a wonderful thought? Go on down in the chapter. It gets better than this, and we know uh, 28 by heart. But look on down in verse 31. And, and I'm, gonna, I'm going to do something that we don't do in Baptist churches. That is, we don't do anything that's not on the schedule. But I'm going to ask, uh, uh, everything's pretty well programmed. I'm going to ask uh, uh, if we can't sing that first song. God is for us, isn't he? Can we sing that to close? Or not? Maybe for the invitation we'll sing what we were. But at the end, after we get ready to say goodbye to each other, let that ring in our minds as our closing song. Look at verse uh, 31. What should we say then? Say to these things. Then say to these things. If God be for us, who can be against us? 
Washington, D.C.? No. Yeah. If God be for us, he is for us. You got that, don't you? God's not against me. If I didn't know this, I wouldn't bother getting up tomorrow. If I was, up my, if I was on my own tomorrow, knowing that tomorrow I would have to function by my own wit and wisdom, it's not worth it. I wouldn't get up. But I know he's for me. Look on down, if you will, at the latter part of the chapter. Verse 37. Nay, and all these things. You see that in verse 31. It says these things. It's, it's interesting how the Bible just compresses things in such orderly fashion. These things. The things that are delineated, verses 32 through 36. Nay, and all these things. We are more than conquerors. If I didn't know who wins the battle, who won the battle, who's going, who's going to the last page of the book, if I didn't know that, I'd be disheartened by the news. But I do. Election doesn't phase my comprehension of this reality. God's for us. And he's already won the battle doesn't mean that I passively go along and just kind of function as though uh, I don't have responsibilities in family and in country and all of those kinds of things. But it does mean that I know in the ultimate battle, uh, whether in a prison cell like Bunyan, who for 12 years sat, and out of that came this wonderful book called Pilgrim's Progress. God's for us. Did you, do you remember that account where the brothers of Joseph came after dad had died and said, oh, dad said you got to be good to us now, you know. And he said, listen, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. He said that though 12 years, a slave, a prisoner, God meant it for good. How could you face the next doctor visit? How could you face the next bill? How could you face the next day? How could you face the next challenge if you didn't know that God had already won the battle? It's over. It's done. The last chapter is written. And he wins. We are more than conquerors. We used to sing that. You remember back in the campus for Crusade for Christ days, Bill, uh, whoever he was, he used to sing that. Mel uh, something or other, can't remember his name. He used to sing, we are more than conquerors. Every Saturday night, Mom would have that on the radio. And uh, it was kind of a marching song. Does anybody remember that song? I'm probably dating myself. <laughs> but you just you get, a, get a handle of that verse 37. Look at verse 38. That's not all. It even gets better. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How could you get any better than that? You know, 
Not only are we conquerors, but we are, we are convinced. I'm persuaded of this. Uh, I feel bad for the people who week after week, month after month, year after year, enter a church building, go through a ritual, and they say to themselves, well, I'm believing, and I hope I'm going to get into heaven someday. I don't hope I'm getting to heaven. I'm persuaded because of the facts in this book, not because how good I am. I could never be good enough. In my best day, I could never be good enough. But that moment when I trusted him as my Savior, he took me into his family. He accepted me into the beloved. Um, and I look back upon that moment and I think from that point to this point, I've failed him a lot. But I'm persuaded that he's never failed me. And I can hang on like, like Paul did in this letter to these dear Roman people living in the heart, the heart of the abyss of the culture of Rome, of the world in Rome. And I could say, as Paul did, I'm persuaded. I'm, I'm just... I'm not self-confident. I'm just persuaded by his word and by his person and by his truth. I'm persuaded. And all those gloomy looking things in Romans chapter 1, all those gloomy look looking things only have significance to me in the fact that I know that I live in a world that perpetuates those things. But anybody living in that world can move from darkness to light in a moment. I'm persuaded. Let's pray.